are listening to Los Altos Institute's podcast, The Fourth World, our 13-episode course on global indigeneity, taught by me, Stuart Parker, the usual guy. It's something topical in the news as far as indigeneity goes. I'm pretty sure uh, Rachel Notley's book that arrested Danielle Smith down to the floor of the legislature and give her a 23andMe test. Have you, heard our contra- have you heard our controversy? No. Um, well, all throughout her lifetime, Daniel Smith's people have told her that she's got a, I don't know, grandmother, great-grandmother who is Cherokee or half-Cherokee or some damn thing, eh? Oh, and yeah. So, I mean, she assumed that and just, that's kind of, she's going to get up somewhere and it's the big controversy now. Oh, God. Yep, because she's going to use it to get all the advantages of being an indigenous person, Stuart. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, it's, there it's, is a logic to people who say that, like white uh, white men who also get Indian status or also get to be women do get to get all the compensatory stuff as well as all the dominant stuff. Yeah, I, mean, I, I suppose you do now, but like I say, this is kind of, you know, something yeah. that her family is always... Assume, assumed was true yeah and there they haven't been proven nothing's been proven otherwise uh this is this is something that's been passed down in the family as, as being as being true so uh you know yeah 40 years ago it didn't carry quite the cachet that it does now you know right and maybe something that they should have swept under the rug right but uh yeah so it's funny eh? they're uh, they're attacking her for that well it's it's a classic right why, why are they attacking her now? Well, because she's pursuing public policies that um, are supported by the wrong kind of indigenous person. She's caught in the Indian I had in mind problem now. Because oh, yeah, like, no. yeah, we're going to have to test her blood because obviously she is not behaving like the Indian we had in mind. Um, exactly. You know, which is, you know, why... Um, yeah, which is why we, you know, refuse to look at the indigeneity and Métis nature, the Freedom Convoy and all the other stuff. It's like, yeah, it's uh, it's so weird. Anyway, the, the fact that this could be some sort of, it really speaks to our moment, right? That you have these two white women debating the purity of each other's <laughs> blood on the floor of the Alberta legislature. Ah. Uh, <laughs> That's pretty great stuff. Oh, oh yeah, I thought I thought you might get a kick out of it. I'm not sure how how uh, national the coverage of this has gone or anything. Eh? Um, no, I mean there's a lot of like national coverage attacking Danielle Smith, but that one is pretty boutique. That one seems to have stayed within your borders. Yeah, no, it's it's coming your way. I'm sure. <laughs> well, uh, in our indigenous news for the day, uh, our new premier has announced that uh, we will be racially streaming legal aid now. So indigenous people will be in their separate legal aid. We'll be in a separate legal aid system from uh, uh, the rest of us. So that that could play any number of ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Is it the fast lane or the slow lane? Okay, there's a disproportionate number of uh, indigenous people charged with crimes and whatnot, right? Yes, they are so more in are conflict gonna, with the are law. They gonna put a, are they going to put a disproportionate number of lawyers into that stream or just clean up the stream for the white folks, eh? Um, yeah, it could go either way. I think the way this government will play it. I think that the f- future governments will probably play it that way. But what this government will do 
Israel uses an excuse to complete the austerity program for legal aid that began in 1995. There's been a bipartisan consensus here uh, to cut legal aid every time a new government takes power. And so my bet is that they'll preserve legal aid funding for indigenous people and begin phasing out the program for non-indigenous people. I think that's that's what the NDP will do. Uh, I imagine if the BC Liberals get control of the thing, it'll go a different way. But uh, yeah. Anyway, let's uh, let's get to Polynesia. Uh, we're uh, starting a little a uh, little late. I think I've come up with like a shorter thing on Polynesia generally, but there's actually a lot of really interesting stuff here that um, is uh, some stuff I've I've taught for this course. I've never taught at an academic level like the um, the Arctic stuff has always fascinated me, but I've never had an opportunity to teach it. Some of this stuff on Polynesia, however, is really close to some of my core research and teaching interests. So you'll get a few more layers of interpretation, I would say. I think you'll you'll get a little bit more of a sophisticated take here. So um, Polynesians basically began as a seafaring people um, uh, about 3000 BC. Polynesian material culture branches off from other material cultures in the archaeological record about, about 5,000 years ago. Um, Polynesians were an offshoot of the indigenous Taiwanese people. So uh, indigenous Taiwanese dominated uh, Taiwan until um, uh, a series of conquests by the Chinese and Japanese in the early modern period. So there is, so there was, um, so it's interesting, one of the features generally of Polynesians has been that um, uh, they have expanded into new territory more efficiently than pretty much any other group. Their ability to defend territory they have occupied once another material culture group comes in has traditionally been very poor. As a result, many of the places where Polynesian culture began have no trace of Polynesians genetically or materially today. The Philippine archipelago is pretty much the first place Polynesians expanded into. Uh, and that was not long after 3000 BC, because one of the characteristics of Polynesian material culture is its oceanic orientation and its seafaring technologies, particularly these um, large outrigger canoes that are ocean going uh, and can go considerable distances in open ocean. Uh, in many ways, Polynesian maritime technology has defied um, normal um, material and cultural expectations. Um, typically, um, if you're not hugging the shore, you need very different technologies to, be a, to do successful maritime travel. Um, that uh, uh, that we don't associate with Polynesians. Um, their navigation, although sophisticated and complex, um, is not reliant on the night sky in the same way that 
Europeans, Asians uh, learned uh, to do ocean going navigation. So uh, Polynesian navigation is distinct from that. Um, similarly, uh, anyway, there are a number of other things that, about Polynesian material and um, social culture uh, that make their migration behaviors highly distinctive. They have something where they uh, actually were able to tell from like the waves that were coming in, like patterns from exactly yeah. Yeah, that's like their a... thing their ability to detect sub-oceanic currents yeah visually. they had a thing it was like a almost like a woven um cross or something out of sticks or something that they use for a, a guide thing eh? yeah they have they have two-dimensional oh, maps cool. but those yeah. two-dimensional maps uh in whereas our two dimension our original two-dimensional maps were about observe behavior on the surface correlated to information from the sky, whereas Polynesian two-dimensional maps are observed uh, events on the surface correlated to observed events below the surface of the ocean, either observed through um, the uh, torque, uh, the current places on the ship or the oars, or based on a more sophisticated visual apprehension of different shades of color in uh, the ocean. So um, yeah, and of course, wave height as well is a, a significant factor. So yeah, so we have this totally alternative technological path for ocean faring migration that it's not like an earlier version of the Vikings or the Chinese or the Arabs or the Phoenicians it's not a later version. It is just a completely different technological path, but there's a social technology that has to go with it as well. And that is the premise of successful navigation in the early seafaring peoples of Europe and Asia and Africa, right? Was you assess the quality of the navigation largely based on long-term and sustained contacts with the new places you uh, went to. And that is not a strong feature of Polynesian navigation. There are certainly areas of the Polynesian world where there is sustained, frequent, and long-term contact. But the great achievements of Polynesian colonization of new lands um, it's based on the fact that people are willing to try doing that thing, even with a very low, very high mortality, low success rate, and almost no data coming back. So the preservation of certain traditions of colonization, despite very little positive feedback from the world, is a fascinating feature of Polynesian uh, culture and tech. And yes, and also the, the tolerance of a higher um, uh, a higher mortality rate uh, for people who do high risk stuff in boats. Now that's not unique to Polynesians. You get that with almost any people who were doing whaling before it became trendy to Europeans. So, you know, groups like the Macaw and others uh, around Puget Sound um, certainly, there are other there are other seafaring 
um, people who are getting most of their sustenance from the water who are willing to tolerate um, high levels of death at sea. But the fact that that is bootstrapped not to a hunting culture, but to a but also to a colonial and exploratory culture uh, makes the Polynesians so distinctive. So the first place Polynesians settled where they remain today is the Solomon Islands uh, off the east coast of Erian, north of Australia. Uh, the Solomons, a uh, very interesting place. Um, the uh, one of my uh, family's longtime associates, a um, mathematician and linguist, um, Harry Cannon, um, helped the um, helped the uh, post-colonial government in the Solomons design uh, Polynesian. Uh, anyway, there's a funny story. Um, one of my, my Solomon Island stories that I think speaks to um, the problem of uh, this ecological thing of neo-Europe's and of the breadth of colonial education. Um, the, uh, the one poem that everybody um, in the, uh, uh, I think in the fourth grade in the British Empire had to memorize in the 50s and 60s was Wordsworth's poem, Daffodils. There are no daffodils, not one single daffodil in the Solomon Islands. And uh, when Harry went over there to um, design uh, this new curriculum, um, the first target was the daffodils poem. That it really, <laughs> it spoke to the uh, velvet glove of British imperialism. And I raise the velvet glove of British imperialism because it's a theme we're going to return to. It produces a lot of str more strange paradoxes in the Polynesian world than in other parts of the British and American empires. So when um, like you think of the different symbols of British oppression that one might um, focus on in other places, you know, in India, in Kenya, people would think of massacres, right? In Tanzania, they might think of the freeing of the Omani slaves. Um, uh, but in the Solomon Islands, um, the touchstone was the daffodils. Um, that this was a form, it was a bizarre form of cultural oppression um, because of course, Daffodils is among the most sentimental, the most vanilla, the most uncontroversial of Wordsworth's poems. While some people say it might have foreshadowed the Imagist movement and William Carlos Williams' Red Wheelbarrow, um, the fact is that it's on the strength of things like that that Queen Victoria decided he was her poet laureate. In any case, um, the Solomons, uh, 1500 BC, and from the Solomons, uh, which are, you know, really part of the Indonesian archipelago, Polynesians go east to New Caledonia, and they arrive in what is called the Polynesian archipelago today. So the Polynesians did not begin in the Polynesian archipelago, and much of the original territory of the Polynesians is today Melanesian, Micronesian, or Indonesian. 
Uh, so um, this is a um, this is an interesting feature of these folks. Um, Polynesians, uh, as I've said, have tended to thrive in places where there are no cultural competitors. Now that does not mean that Polynesian societies are bad at war. Um, it's just that um, war in Polynesian societies is much more culturally structured than um, wars between societies that don't have as much shared culture. Um, there are all these rules, there's all this etiquette, there are all these ideas about what is and is not an honorable way to engage in violence, right? In the North American continent, the Iroquois Confederacy are best known for this, that their, their unwillingness to kill people on the battlefield and the insistence on inefficiently capturing them and taking them back to their village um, meant that the Iroquois could beat uh, were highly effective at beating other Iroquoians who played by the same rules, but were militarily ineffective once they were outside of that rule system. And so you see the same thing here, right? Hawaii had been characterized by multiple kingdoms almost constantly at war, basically from the inception of Hawaii up until the arrival of Europeans. So, um, this uh, so there's some interesting paradoxes there. So war among Polynesians, Polynesians tend to win. War uh, with other cultures, Polynesians almost always lose. Um, now some of that is changing as Polynesians have become more culturally diverse, and as many Polynesians have adopted ideas from other militaristic cultures that think about physical force differently. And we'll see that very much in Fiji, where in fact, um, the Fijians are able to retake control of Fiji because of their control of the Fijian military and their greater proficiency at adopting uh, new military tactics. So we, um, so war traditionally for Polynesians was um, culturally circumscribed and rules-based. And this is part of some very important, uh, the, one of the most important things about Polynesians, not important to Polynesians, but important to the history of our encounter with them is a Polynesian understanding of masculinity. Um, Polynesians, have had a restraint-based theory of masculinity for in a much longer term, more consistent and more society-wide way than um, other cultures that have embraced it more recently. The idea that the essence of masculinity is self-control is a very new one in most cultures. But the idea of self-control as a masculine value goes back a fair way. We first start seeing this with Aristotle when he talks about differences of gender. But Aristotle's writing in an aspirational way. He writes more about how men can control themselves more 
than he does about how men do control themselves more. So while tradition, while many traditional societies have, based on their reading of Aristotle, um, decided that self-control is a behavior with which men are more amply endowed, uh, or the capacity for which men are more amply endowed, the reality is that um, uh, for... Um, this is not really uh, most most societies have not prized that as the primary masculine value, nor as an enacted masculine value, as in going out every day and controlling yourself. Uh, it's a pretty new project in um, uh, much of the world uh, for men, uh, certainly in Europe, where. It's the Calvinists first, and then the liberals that the Calvinists give rise to, who come up with this new theory of what it means to be a man. But as far as we can tell from the archaeological record in Polynesian society, this is a foundational value that uh, Polynesians um, have worked with for longer. Now, that's not to say it is not also a class-differentiated value. One of the ways that one shows oneself to be a Polynesian aristocrat is to be more self-controlled than a Polynesian commoner. So there's that um, there's that double identifier of class and gender in shaping ideas of self-control. The reality is that at all levels of Polynesian society, though, self-control is understood to be a Polynesian value, or was until pretty recently. I would say that um, Maori political activism being so closely linked to American indigenous political activism beginning in the 1970s has caused um, certainly the left of the Maori to um, reconsider self-control as an important uh, manly value. But for uh, conservative Maori, that remains a big thing, and it remains the master discourse um, for talking about uh, the problems of addiction that often go along with being colonized. Okay, so we already talked about the uh, two-dimensional maps, the uh, uh, seasonal and constant ocean currents, this larger navigational structure. Uh, to go along with this, um, Polynesians highly strategic in the supplies they bring with them on, on fairly small boats um, to be able to recreate Polynesian society wherever they land. Um, you know, uh, get, um, um, you know, and uh, uh, we see this... Um, we see this not just with um, uh, food crops, but with, um, uh, unlike many other indigenous peoples of the world, uh, Polynesians uh, appear to have, uh, have uh, highly valued uh, pigs, chickens. Um, and again, pigs and chickens have moved with Polynesians in ways unlike domesticated animals elsewhere. Uh, how the hell you put wild boars on a canoe? Uh, I don't know. 
And obviously, in some cases, there are like local pig populations. But certainly, we've uh, there the canoeing with chickens um, is uh, something is a, one of the more recent. Uh, it's a more recent domestic animal for Polynesians, but uh, it's been good. They've been doing that for a while. So the most recently settled places, again, to give you the sort of Arctic shock you got before. Um, the uh, New Zealand may have been settled as late as 1300. As early as 1200, as late as 1300. So just when the Inuit are um, conquering Greenland and the Sami are conquering uh, central Norway and Finland, um, the Polynesians are showing up in New Zealand as the first people of the New Zealand archipelago. Uh, and establishing the society of the Maori there. Uh, uh, Easter Island um, settled somewhere between 1,000 and 1,200. Hawaii, around 900. And that's one of the reasons that, like the Inuit, Polynesians have different languages, but they are surprisingly mutually intelligible. Uh, so they're not the same language. You can't just move between them. They're not dialects, but they have the same kind of proximity to one another that Inuit languages have, particularly in the areas furthest from Asia and closest to the Americas, because they were all settled so damn recently. Uh, so it's just, it's not because of continued contact between um, uh, Easter Island, uh, New Zealand, and Hawaii that we see linguistic similarity. It's because they're settled within a few centuries of each other. Uh, similar to the story of, you know, the uh, um, languages like uh, Inuktitut, Inuvialuit, uh, Greenland, Inuit, etc., being uh, so close together. Uh, so yeah, I think we already covered the fact that colonization tended to be a long-term high mortality tradition, uh, very different than other societies' theories of colonization, where you reap the benefits of colonization because of what starts coming back to you from elsewhere. Uh, Polynesians, um, the colonization has intrinsic value. It's enabled sometimes to deal with significant social divisions, competing aristocrats, things like that. Um, but it's enabled with no real expectation of resources coming back when you send people out. Uh, that's, um, that's also quite different. The uh, one similarity we found uh, to that so far in our course material is not a similarity to... Um, other indigenous people, but to the Puritans of 17th and 18th century Massachusetts. Exactly. And it's interesting to note that the Puritans of 17th and 18th century Massachusetts were also on the cutting edge of masculinity as defined by self-control. Ah, uh, so... It's an interesting resonance, but you could see why these things might be paired. That 
men not hitting each other inside the same society and keeping their tempers under control, your resolution dynamic for social conflict is going to be to expel the smaller group so that you can return to a consensus and the smaller group leaves so it can maintain its opposing consensus. So I think it's quite helpful to remember that Polynesians are not wholly unlike um, early modern English colonists. And we see that also with their ability to break land, that early modern English colonists are far more proficient at setting up new agricultural infrastructure, and particularly in using pigs to break land and defoliate key regions. So there, there are odd similarities to the Pilgrim Fathers and the Polynesians, including, of course, the idea that they're settling this new land because a divinity has asked them to do so. Now, um, one of the other features of Polynesians is that they um, is their absorption into other societies. Um, they... In some cases, right, like in Indonesia and the Philippine archipelago, people came after them and effectively exterminated or assimilated them. Um, but there are also instances of Polynesians vanishing into cultures. And the Pacific Northwest is one such place. Polynesians were a highly, highly visible part of gold rush culture. Um, and gold rush culture in um, this period from 1846 in California, the, the California gold rush to 1899, the Klondike gold rush in the Yukon, Polynesians were the third largest demographic group after Anglos and Chinese. Um, Hawaiian was one of the three main languages of the gold rushes. And um, uh, one of the most interesting organizers I worked with uh, politically was a guy named Tom Johnstone, who was on the crew of the last of the great uh, Gold Rush Sternwheeler uh, transportation systems. Um, he, um, uh, he was working on the Sternwheelers in his late teens, I guess that would be in the late 1920s, on the Athabasca where um, you still had uh, Gold Rush era sternwheelers. And it's there that he learned to speak Hawaiian and uh, which allowed him to court his Hawaiian wife um, whom he was living with in Ashcroft in the 1990s. So the Hawaiians, um, there's a bunch of Hawaiian DNA uh, around um, the Pacific Northwest in that strip from Dawson City to um, San Francisco, uh, that um, whose cultural manifestation has largely vanished. So you got to remember that this Polynesian tendency to go far away is not a thing that has been wholly lost to Polynesian culture. Uh, this. Um, uh, this sense that uh, we're going to go far away and not come back. Um, 
there were a number of material reasons for why you might want to get out of Hawaii in the second half of the 19th century that, of course, provide a push factor here. And I'll get to that shortly. Uh, one of the features of Polynesian populations is low levels of insular genetic diversity. What that means is that while Polynesians are genetically diverse as a whole, the individual islands they inhabit have very, very low levels of genetic diversity. What this means is that most populated Polynesian islands were populated, were settled by one group of Polynesians and, and there were not a set of successive waves of migration. Uh, a single founding group uh, became the group and the island was not encountered again uh, by Polynesian colonists. Or perhaps it was and they were pushed off because the island was already inhabited. Um, so, there are, so Polynesian demographics reflect single migrations, not wave repeated migrations. Uh, and that's in the past. Um, there are 2 million Polynesians in the present and just shy of 40% of them are Maori. So of the Polynesian ethnicities in the world, the newest one, the one that is 700 years old, constitutes 40% of all Polynesians. Uh, the Maori diaspora is surprisingly large. Um, I had a Maori uh, constituency president uh, when I was active in NDP politics in uh, Toronto, uh, Ron Grant. Uh, uh, when I was on the board of Fair Vote Canada, one of the members was uh, uh, at the same time uh, also part of the Maori diaspora. I know there's a and these people did know each other. There's, uh, there, uh, in a, there are 130,000 Maori living in Australia, and um, there's a very wide geographic distribution of that group. Uh, the Maori, uh, so one of the features of Polynesian demographics is they were vulnerable to virgin soil epidemics. That tells us how and that's because they really started with an insular population from Taiwan. So had Polynesians started as a coastal population from southeastern China, they would have been affected far less by virgin soil epidemics. But the same kinds of epidemic effects we saw in the New World happened throughout Polynesia. It happened to the Maori and all kinds of groups. So all Polynesian peoples were pushed to a demographic nadir by the end of the 19th century uh, based on their encounters with European colonists. What is most interesting about Polynesian demographics is how for every Polynesian place, there's a different story of its 20th and 21st century demographic history. Um, there's no set pattern. So you take a place like Tuvalu, um, it was decolonized in the 1990s. It had been a British colony. There had never been a significant number of British there. So the Tuvalu population fell to a very low level and then has bounced back to about 14,000 today on this fairly small island that um, will be completely underwater uh, very soon. Um, the tide sometimes goes all the way across, uh, and um, needless to say, they are the most upset people at climate conferences. 
especially since the Australians and New Zealanders have begun revoking their agreements made at climate conferences in the 80s and 90s to accept Tuvalu climate refugees. The only thing the people of Tuvalu really have going for them is the fact that they own the .tv domain name, uh, which uh, produces a certain amount of royalties from outside the country. Uh, now, Tuvalu is 97% Tuvaloon, um, and they have their own established autochthonous church that is headed by their king, who has power in their constitutional monarchy. Um, the story in New Zealand and Hawaii, um, the number of native Hawaiians fell, I believe, to a nadir of 20,000 in 1900, um, comprising a small portion of the Hawaiian population. Um, it's risen now into, um, uh, between 140,000 and 400,000, um, depending upon how you think about people of mixed, uh, Hawaiian heritage, uh, in New Zealand, um, the proportion of Maori in the population fell to a nadir of 5% and is now at 16%. Um, and so we see the kind, and so in some places, even places that remain colonized, we see major demographic recoveries. Uh, a useful comparison in Canada would be the province of Saskatchewan, where um, although, uh, Although uh, indigenous uh, people remain colonized, they constitute a, the only growing part of the Saskatchewan population um, and steadily rising as proportion of the whole place. There are some places like Easter Island where, again, Polynesians fell to a minority of the population due to virgin soil epidemics and have recovered to majority status. Um, but remain colonized. And Easter Island is our best example of that. It remains a part of Chile, controlled by the Chilean government uh, with very limited self-governance rights. Uh, but the Easter Islanders are once again a majority and are a rapidly growing group. Because of the poverty and lack of education that uh, most indigenous people suffer all over the world, it does mean that in developed countries, they have a higher birth rate than their neighbors, which produces interesting demographic paradoxes. Um, Fiji is by far the most interesting demographic story. I'm not probably by far because I don't know all the stories. I'm sure there's a more exciting one. I just haven't read. Um, but uh, the... Um, but in Fiji, um, the two main groups in Fiji were uh, indentured laborers and uh, administrators brought in from South India by the British. Uh, and um, they comprised, up until the 1970s, about 70% of the population. And under British rule, they had 100% of the political power uh, because the British, the, 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 um, a lot of people don't realize that um, the single largest number of British colonial administrators 
were Indian, not Scottish, not Irish, not English, but Indian. So during the second British Empire, particularly its terminal phase from 1857 onwards, um, people, uh, the, it's the uh, South Asian middle class that runs most of what comprises the British Empire territorially. Uh, so that's, that's pretty weird. And so consequently, because the Indians were both the bottom class and the top class in Fiji, uh, and were um, providing all this agricultural labor as well as all the administrative labor, uh, they comprised 70% of the population, held all political power. However, native Fijians found, as indigenous people often find, especially in this country and in Egypt, uh, probably the Canadian Métis and the Copts are next to the Fijians, the uh, indigenous people most likely to escape poverty and gain education by enlisting in their military. In Fiji, um, native Fijians were pushed out of so many occupations, the military made sense. So independence took place in the 1970s and beginning in the 1980s, a series of coups and counter coups began in Fiji. Uh, democracy was constantly being shut down. And each time the Fijian, mil uh, the, this dominant Fijian military group took power, they used government policy to push Indians out. So it's not merely that Fijian population growth was higher than that of their Hindu neighbors. It's also that like the governments, not just of Idi Amin, right? This policy tends to be associated with Idi Amin, the mass eviction of South Asians following decolonization. But some of the people we like, some of, well, in fact, the guy who proclaims the existence of the fourth world, the guy on whom, this course is in part based, Julie, Dr. Julius Nyerere, leader of Tanz uh, Cold War Tanzania. Nyerere engaged in the same purge of South Asians and pushed them out of Tanzania. Um, there's now a move for many of the people who had lived in Tanzania um, for generations, in some cases centuries, to return there, a former student of mine, Shazia, has settled in Dar es Salaam, um, where she's one of the um, uh, people whose families has, had historically lived in Dar, but um, uh, had been pushed out uh, by Nyerere's people in the 80s, and, um, but have been welcomed back uh, in the 21st century. In the case of Fiji, there has not been a welcome back moment. Uh, the Fijians have succeeded in almost all of the military contests of power. And so through a combination of emigration and differential birth rates, the demographics of Fiji have flipped. It was 70% South Asian in 1970. In 2020, it is 70% Fijian. And uh, that's, um, that's uh, I would say, a pretty interesting story. Uh, now we get into some of the weirdest stuff. 
the problem of the Indian I had in mind, to which we were speaking at the beginning, um, paradoxically benefited Polynesians during um, the zenith of the British Empire. The British um, had the military strength to seize political control of Hawaii, of Samoa, of uh, New Zealand, and were slow to do so. Uh, shockingly slow to do so. The British arrive in Hawaii in the um, 1770s. Captain Cook is, um, you know, killed there. Uh, they, um, they discover Hawaii, um, and other European powers show up too, um, and not just European powers. Throughout the 19th century, um, French, Germans, Americans, British, and Japanese all migrate in significant numbers to Hawaii, helping to increase the rate of the crippling virgin soil epidemics that destroy the Kingdom of Hawaii. But the Kingdom of Hawaii is a strange thing because it existed because the Kamehameha dynasty was sold weapons by the British to conquer and unify the Hawaiian archipelago. Uh, and uh, so Hawaii, the Kingdom of Hawaii reaches its zenith in partnership with Europeans, not in opposition to Europeans. Um, in Samoa, the British, again, are reluctant to seize direct political control. Um, they have lots of migrants there, but um, many of those migrants actually support Samoan self-government and the maintenance of the Kingdom of Samoa. The most famous of these is Robert Louis Stevenson, author of Treasure Island uh, and the strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Uh, Stevenson spent the last 20 of his years of his life there as one of the local British settlers opposing its incorporation into the British Empire and supporting its continuation as a kingdom. And uh, Stevenson wrote at length about needed social reforms that uh, Samoans had to undergo in order to succeed at this. Uh, in um, so So... I mean, Hawaii um, exists as a kingdom for 126 years between European arrivals and its annexation by the United States as a territory in 1896. Um, Hawaii, furthermore, is only annexed by the United States because a kind of government takes power in Hawaii with an agenda similar to the... Um, past 50 years of past 40 years of Fijian governments. It's because the Hawaiian monarchy turns against European settlers that um, the Americans then see a pretext for deposing it and incorporating Hawaii as a territory. Um, New Zealand is a similar story. The Treaty of Waitangi, um, recognizing the Maori as uh, 
self-governing and equal, uh, is in effect from 1840 to 1877. It's not until large numbers of colonists begin illegally colonizing Maori lands that, um, and then they are given voting rights in their colonial assembly that the increasing independence and increasing self-government of New Zealand colonists is what breaks the original treaty with the British. And then we have a hundred years of New Zealand attempting Maori termination uh, before in the 1970s recognizing that um, the treaty is valid, the Maori aren't going anywhere and rolling out various Maori self-governance rights like guaranteed seats in parliament, uh, something that exists up to the Maori self-governance rights. Um, so one of the questions that we have to ask ourselves is why, when facing some of the most demographically insignificant groups with the biggest gaps in technology and the most resources behind the British Empire, why do they call these people kings? Why do the British let them keep their territory? Uh, it's an interesting question because you got to remember that at the same time this is going on, the British don't recognize the Ashanti kingdom as kings. They're tribesmen living in the lower Niger basin. You know, there are a couple of million of them, but that's a tribe. That's a chief. That's not a kingdom. That's not a king. Uh, in uh, Kenya, in, uh, I mean, uh, in uh, Rhodesia, all over Africa, the British encounter are encountering at the same time as they're in the, in the Pacific, highly complex political formations, um, technologically more advanced than the Polynesians, um, numbering on a completely different scale than the Polynesians in hundreds of thousands or millions rather than Polynesian islands where, you know, the most you're going to find is maybe a quarter of a million in New Zealand, you know, 10,000 here, 10,000 there, often less. Well, I am persuaded of the theory that, um, uh, that the British see their reflection in the mirror, that Polynesian aristocrats are better at the thing the British gentry claims it's the best at in the world, which is self-control, restraint, the ability to not show anger, that when they meet Polynesian aristocrats, this is the first time Calvinist British gentry assholes come face to face with men who are more profoundly passive aggressive than they are and are, have more practice at it, are less likely to punch them. And I think this is a, it's fascinating because this protects Polynesian people in ways that all kinds of way more rational things don't. Uh, the British, of course, this person is a king. It doesn't matter that he's naked. It doesn't matter that his technology is Stone Age. This guy has mastered the affect politics of only the most elite self-controlled members of the European gentry. So 
Uh, I think that's a huge factor in why when Europeans encounter these highly isolated Stone Age populations, they see something that looks more like them to themselves uh, when, than when they meet uh, the king of the Indobele in, um, in Bulawayo. So uh, uh, this is, I would say, a consistent feature. And in fact, you can see its political effects from a recent period we had here. Um, Barack Obama's blackness, right, is one of... So Barack Obama, one of the most interesting things about the Obama regime, I think, is um, the cultural phenomenon of whether Barack Obama was black, given that um, he's not descended from slaves um, and was raised in, like Julian the Apostate, uh, the Roman emperor he most resembles, uh, he was raised way out in the periphery of the empire, namely Hawaii where he was sent to an elite boarding school. There are two most elite boarding schools um, in Hawaii. One is uh, you can't enter it unless you are an ethnic Hawaiian, but there's another one that is a mix of the elites of Hawaiian Japanese, Anglo and Hawaiian culture. And if you look at how Barack Obama functioned as president, um, his political victory conditions were very much those of a Hawaiian aristocrat. Like Obama made hideous policy concessions often, but in every interaction with his adversaries, he exhibited more self-control than they did and dominated them through his superior self-control. So when he was interacting, when he's negotiating with the Republicans, they're the ones who are sounding angry, looking out of control. And in many ways, I think a lot of the really bad affect politics we associate with progressives today come out of this period because we see Obama's political skills as being far more Hawaiian than they are Anglo or Kenyan that um, it's about humiliating your adversary by having them lose it first. And that's a, that's a common form of dueling in King Kamehameha's court, where these people are insulting each other, they're making moves against each other, but they have to not show anger. They have to not show impatience. So... Um, uh, so I think that this really helps to explain the reluctance of the British Empire um, to annex these territories. And let's be clear, um, the Americans end up with more of the Pacific in large measure because they are less interested in this extreme form of Anglo self-control masculinity. So even though the British are way ahead of the Americans in Hawaii, the Americans get... Hawaii. Even though the British are way ahead of the Americans in Samoa, the Americans get half of Samoa. Uh, and we see this iterate. So there's a strange British restraint that Polynesian restraint helps to engender. Uh, 
Gail Biederman uh, wrote a book called Manliness and Civilization that does not mention Polynesia at all, but it, it does talk about this ethos of self-control and how it was diffused in American and British popular culture. Um, and I think she's right that the, um, the text that most, uh, that expresses its relationship to empire the best is Rudyard Kipling's idea of the white man's burden uh, of civilizing the world, of making everybody as self-controlled as we are, which is what uh, was the basis of Teddy Roosevelt's foreign policy. Um, Roosevelt was specific that uh, this was he was inspired by Kipling. Uh, now, the wackiest part of the Indian I had in mind phenomenon, talk a little bit more about the race to control Hawaii. Um, the uh, most authoritative uh, scholar on Hawaii in the 19th century was a uh, proto-anthropologist, a patternist is what um, I call this movement, a patternist named Abraham Fornander, who was of German extraction and ran the German newspaper uh, for Hawaii because the island of Oahu had that many Germans on it. Um, Fornander uh, subscribed to a theory called patternism that I go into in a lot of detail in other courses. But basically it was the social science for interpreting cross-cultural history before sociology or anthropology existed as social sciences. Uh, so uh, patternism involved looking uh, for congruencies between the myths and customs of different cultures and assuming that the points where the myths were the same was the result of diffusion from a pre uh, from a global culture that existed a long time ago, and that um, uh, the parts that were different were uninteresting and probably shouldn't even be written down. Uh, so the existence of taboos as a category in Polynesian culture was very interesting to patternists. And patternists then went to other societies, dietary and behavioral and uh, sartorial prohibitions and developed a patternist theory of the diffusion of some of, of, a, of a unified set of taboos from the ancient past. So Jews, Jains, uh, Buddhists, uh, Polynesians were, they had some common cultural ancestry. This is the way patternists thought about things. Abraham Fornander, of course the patternists did do decent anthropological work sometimes but not reliably because often they would massage data to make things look more similar than they really were. Um, changing episodes in myths so that they were the same as someone else's myth. 
uh, changing um, the specifics of a taboo, a dietary restriction, so they more closely resembled one another. Um, this is actually a movement uh, mocked in my favorite game in the world, RuneQuest. Um, there's uh, the, the, uh, the Middle Sea Empire of the Second Age, the Drastali God Learners actually do this. And they warp the world by changing what has actually happened to the gods by trying to get all the myths to line up. And, uh, I think it's a, it's an amusing thought experiment for talking about the patternists. Um, the patternists, sometimes their views are adopted whole cloth by other patternists. Sometimes um, the views of patternists are promiscuously appropriated by other social movements. And that is why the fourth Mormon temple of all of the great Mormon temples in the world was built on the island of Oahu. Because in the Book of Mormon, um, this uh, mariner named Hagoth sails off into the Pacific um, uh, and uh, founds all of these uh, and uh, is never heard from again. So when the Mormons encounter, um, because of course they think the um, uh, the um, uh, indigenous people of the Americas are um, from Jewish colonies, uh, it logically follows that when it's reported by people like Fornander that um, there are these um, Levitical taboos that are in effect on the island of uh, Oahu, uh, Mormon missionaries rush there. And Polynesians, because they are viewed as an elect people uh, in Mormon theology, are disproportionately Mormon. Uh, the LDS, uh, the most Mormon country on earth is not the United States. It is Tonga. 18% of the Tongans are members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Uh, and um, they, um, they, they take quite seriously their status as the people of Hagoth, the Lamanites of the Pacific. Uh, that has also affected Polynesian diasporic communities. And it's interesting that when Polynesians move to the two main settlement centers of Mormonism, Kansas City uh, and Salt Lake, or the regions around them, really it's Independence, Missouri and Provo, Utah, um, uh, Polynesians are not placed under the same uh, pressures to assimilate. People want uh, Tongan cuisine in, uh, in uh, uh, Provo. They want Tongan cuisine in Independence, Missouri, because um, the, um, uh, the people of Hagoth are viewed as being the people who remain most faithful to um, the uh, eternal beliefs of... Uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints as originally propounded by Adam himself. Uh, so, um, uh, so, there, so once again, there's a peculiar um, benefit to the Indian I had in mind problem. Um, 
Uh, Polynesians enjoy subsidized tuition to the second largest campus of Brigham Young University located on the island of Oahu. Uh, and of course, the Mormons have disproportionately contributed to um, making uh, university education accessible to Polynesians um, and um, basic literacy for Polynesians. Um, they also um, have put a good amount of money into Polynesian archaeology. It's really second only to their investment in Mayan archaeology uh, when it comes to the LDS taking an interest in a particular minority group. So um, the patternists establish really, I mean, Fornander is um, foremost among the patternists in his discovery and exploration of taboos as a category in different Polynesian societies. And uh, what this means is that uh, Polynesia also attracts those who seek to update or refute the patternists. And this is why we have Margaret Mead heading off to Samoa, uh, where she wishes to reevaluate Samoa based on the discipline of anthropology as propounded by Franz Boas in contradistinction to patternism. Of course, we also learned from Margaret Mead's work that um, the Polynesian people's ability to control their affect means they can play really extended jokes on people. And of course, as we now know, about half of the Samoan customs that uh, Margaret Mead wrote about were lies told to her by young women who were just having a laugh. I uh, wanted to see what crazy thing this white woman would believe next. Uh, so again, there's uh, it's interesting how Polynesian. Like we, we were saying last week about Egg and Jim Keekstrawn, you know? Yeah. Sorry, yeah, that's, that, that same sort of attitude, right? From a bunch of itinerant yeah. children, right? And it gets written into the script. <laughs> yeah. So it turns out that if um if you're a people that was facing like a, an overwhelming military and demographic threat during the enlightened uh, the enlightenment era during modernity um having a culture that really strongly values self-control turns out to have been far better protection than um you know a set of rifles uh that um even up to the point of Margaret Mead, you can see that this, um, that there's such an assumption on the part of white people that we're emotionally sophisticated. It's not going to occur to us that the people we're encountering possess an emotional sophistication superior to ours, or at least even if they're not more sophisticated, a culture that prizes that sophistication and self-control to a greater extent. Um, so to sort of wrap up here, um, you can see how a bunch of our long-term questions um, are getting, uh, you know, they're getting more complicated. Are all Polynesians indigenous? All of them were affected by the virgin soil epidemics. All were colonized at least for a short time. The majority remain colonized but a bare majority, about 40% of Polynesians have been decolonized. All continue to suffer from neocolonialism. There's no manufacturing belt in the Polynesian world. Polynesians take in tourists and they export raw materials. That's 
That's the thing. So they're, they're not exactly uh, the zenith of global capitalism. Almost all are Christians. And in fact, um, you know, you get a, something like the Church of Tuvalu, um, and we get back to this interesting question of how does Christianity interact with indigeneity, right? Just as the Mayans prize their particular take on Christianity and see it as the true Christianity, the idea of an established church of which 97% of the population is a member headed by the king, is that really, is that an example of Christianity making you more colonized or less colonized? Um, and then we get to some really absurd situations where um, the colonial power that controlled the place is not the same as the demographic majority of settlers. So Fiji, controlled by the British Empire. The English are never more than a tiny minority of the settlers. Most of the settlers are from India. Similarly, um, in Hawaii, Hawaii is one of only uh, Hawaii and Alaska, well, and it's really just Hawaii. Um, Generally, America, if you want to know what makes a territory a state in the U.S., there's a single rule. It's an unwritten rule, but no territory can become a state unless it achieves this. And it's axiomatic with only one exception, and that is the majority of the population must be white. So although New Mexico was incorporated into the U.S. as a territory, it took it over 60 years to achieve statehood because that's how long it took for white Anglos to become the majority population. Whereas in some places like Nevada, um, right, that transition is way, way more rapid because uh, there's an immediate white majority. If you look at the contemporary territories of the U.S. empire today, American Samoa, the Marshall Islands, these are places that still haven't attained a white majority. Puerto Rico, still no white majority, no white majority, no statehood. And of course, the ultimate proof of this is the District of Columbia. <laughs> With its endless black majority, yeah. so it can never get into the American Senate. Uh, so it's axiomatic. There's only one exception, and it's Hawaii. The um, whites were the third largest demographic group, uh, were the second largest demographic group when Hawaii achieved statehood. The largest were the Japanese, who remain the largest plurality in Hawaii up to the present day. Um, we don't think of Hawaii as a highly Japanese place because the Japanese people there don't behave and aren't associated with the things we stereotypically think of as Japanese. In Hawaii, being involved in farming and the trade union movement, these are the most Japanese things to do and be. Uh, so have to remember that although um, the, the point of statehood, um, Hawaii was 40% Japanese because the empire of Japan would have annexed Hawaii in the 1890s had the Americans not beat them to the punch by a few weeks. Uh, both the Americans and Japanese reacted the same way to the 1896 
coup uh, by the princess of Hawaii and both moved to invade, the Americans just got there faster. Uh, they were better deployed. Uh, but it's useful to uh, remember that there are all kinds of demographic peculiarities. The last demographic peculiarity I will uh, note is mutiny on the bounty, picked Karen Island. Uh, those, um, those mutineers who married the Samoan women and settled Pitcairn Island, um, the closest landmass to Easter Island,